Hello, this is Chris Sidwells, and you are listening to the Cycling Legends podcast interview show. My guest today is none other than the 1988 Giro d'Italia winner, Mr. Andy Hampston. So welcome, Andy, and thanks for talking to us. Thanks, Chris. Okay. Um, inevitably, when everybody, anybody interviews you, you have to talk about the 1988 Giro d'Italia and that day, the snowy day on the Paso de Gavia. Do you feel like it's become your place? that climb oh certainly in history um you know do something odd once and everyone gives you attention for it forever um but yeah it, it was also the what can i say the pinnacle of my athletic moment um my athletic career just because it, it was the time that i was challenged the most yeah. psych- physically and psychologically so I guess if I can call that athletically, it was the most difficult and therefore interesting time I ever had as an athlete. I think I've told you about it before. You you really, you understood the mountains uh, and so did your team, a lot of them coming from Colorado. And there was a lot of forward planning in the in the execution of that stage, wasn't there? Take us through the stage. It was there was slush settling, wasn't there? At four hundred meters, where they yeah, we were meant the the day before we finished up a I think it was a ski town um, further down in the in the big valley um, below Bormio, and the morning that when we woke up in the morning it was snowing. Maybe we were at a a thousand meters altitude. It wasn't terribly high. And the course was to go downhill, hit the valley, go over the Tonali Pass, bit of a nice downhill, then a gradual uphill, um, you know, a nice long approach to the Gavia Pass that goes to 2,600 meters. Mm-hmm. So having done some math in grade school and knowing how temperature gets colder, the higher you go, um, we were having kittens that morning seeing that it was snowing early in the morning or moderately early in the morning at 1,000 meters. It was going to be really bad up at 2,600 meters. Um, So we prepared. We prepared as well as we could, all of the riders on the team, um, with with clothing to be handed to us in a musette bag at the top of the climb by the team manager because the concern on the team was there are two support van cars that can follow riders, but that's always decisions, usually tactical decisions of who the team cars follow. Um, but this was more of a um, a well-being decision of how to get enough warm, necessary warm clothes to every rider on the team. So we came up with the idea that the manager could drive over early we actually had a, a swan here with a thermos of hot tea at three kilometers before the top to hand hot bottles to everyone on the team. And then a bag that each rider could prepare of warm clothing. And I figured the team car would be behind me um, on the climb since I was planning on attacking and having a good day. Mm-hmm. But I did prepare a light musette bag and just took a rain jacket out of it. Um which sounds really brilliant when I tell you all about it all these years later, but <laughs> what I didn't do the math on was a rolled up plastic 1988 rain jacket is pretty much frozen in place when it's rolled into a 
compact ball and I had these wonderful neoprene gloves on that were made for water sports or diving yeah but they were they're rubber on the outside so I couldn't get them through the frozen arms of the jacket instead of being intelligent like most cyclists and stopping and putting on the jacket in 15 or 20 seconds I tried to do it as I was riding along over the top of the pass which was very snowy was slushy snow it wasn't an icy base under the snow but um I, I ended up I was ahead of Eric Broykink going into the top the summit of the climb um by 47 seconds and he caught me when I was fiddling around with my jacket mm -hmm. so we went over the top together um and he didn't have a rain jacket on and he was more aerodynamic than me and I, I put some distance on him on the snowy first half of the descent um, but about midway, there's a town of Santa Catarina and the, the snow turned back to rain at that point. And he passed me with seven kilometers to go. Um, but there's no way I could take that rain jacket off, even if I wanted to on, on the descent. But I, you know, I was racing more of trying to get to the bottom, trying to race as fast as I could, but mostly just trying to survive on a, it was a 25 kilometer descent is what we were most worried about. If it would have finished on top of the Gavia, you know, it would have been a, an interesting race. And I, you know, I had a minute or two on most of my competitors on the uphill. But I think it was the, the, the very difficult conditions on the descent that we did our best to prepare for that made it, I think I beat the yellow jersey by almost five minutes that day, even though he was, Kyochali was ninth on the stage. You know, he didn't have a terrible race in the results, but it made a, the, the descent made a huge difference. What was it like on the climb? I mean, there couldn't have been many spectators out. Did it feel lonely? There were so many, and I just almost met one yesterday. They were freezing, Chris. <laughs> they, were a, they were in a state, but, you know, and it's interesting, and you... I've read a lot or, you know, I've experienced a lot of the Italian tifosi, you know, they're rampant cheering, usually for one or the other of whatever the Italian stars at the time are. But they were all so excited, not that there were, you know, there were probably thousands of them. It wasn't hundreds, it certainly wasn't a huge amount of people. And many were cyclists that obviously had ridden up there. They were freezing cold, but... They were so excited that we came by, you know, and they weren't Andy Hampston fans on the Gavia. They were cycling fans and they were so delighted that the race was happening. I, I think they understood how historic it was and they were handing up newspapers. But someone, I was looking <laughs> at some of them thinking, I'm cold, but you're in trouble. You're not even moving, you know, and there's there's um, beautiful refuge. Oh, how do we say that? Um, hostels at yeah. the top. You know, they can go have a hot coffee and a huge bowl of beautiful pasta a few steps away and we couldn't. Um, but, but there are quite a few fans and I've gone back quite a few times to Bormio doing my my cycling groups. And I, I've met people that were there off and on, um, but they suffered. But it was to them, the story of me and the other riders going through with the stage was, was very important to them because they weren't really sure that we would um, because of the snow. Yeah.
And, and I think that you've said you felt quite bad and quite emotional the, the following year because the stage was cancelled, wasn't it? And there was all those people on the, the Gavia. Were you going past them by buses? Yeah, well, we didn't have a bus. Thank you very much. It was the, it was the 1989. Um, yeah, they were they were furious, you know, and they they were robbed. There was no reason not to run the stage. It was um, a political payback. Um, and they were furious. You know, it should have been an epic moment and it wasn't. Would, the, would that stage have been run today with this uh, bad weather protocol? That, uh... Yeah, maybe not. Um, you know, it, it would have been a situation where, <laughs> I don't know how they do those things, but, you know, I know there's a bad weather protocol and I'm not um, discouraging that mm. from happening. Um, but I don't know if it would have been. Yeah, yeah. I think there are lots of stories that aren't there about. I, I heard one about a mechanic that had been, got out of his ticket car and been left up there. Well, that's uh, that might have originated from me because on my descent, yeah, um, thinking, oh, um, you know, I'm, I love riding on dirt road. It's a dirt road. It, yeah. It's soft, wet snow on a dirt road. It's not. It's paved across the top where it's fairly level, but on the descent and most of the climb, um, it was a dirt road with pretty good footing. Um, you know, it wasn't slick. It, it's. I was feathering my brakes the whole time to keep the you know some of the moisture off of them so I'd have some braking power. I kept one gear turning probably a 53, 14, or 13, just so my legs wouldn't stop moving and my gears would always work. Um, and there was <laughs> midway down after three or four kilometers of descending, there was a Carrera mechanic with two <laughs> sets of wheels because you know they were prepared to have a flat tire on the on the potential flat tire on the gravel section. And Carrera had a little co-sponsor, Gore-Tex, in that period, because they were the envy of the, the support staff, the, because the mechanics and soigneurs would have a Gore-Tex parka <laughs> and Gore-Tex pants right. in you know white, but with Carrera plastered all over, you know, just the nicest looking yeah. team kit there was. And when we were racing, there was no lead car. There were no police motorcycles. The, the 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 television radio relay didn't work because the helicopter can't fly in that weather. And that's how the, the car radios would work also. So it probably seemed to this mechanic that the race was over. It, it had been canceled and, you know, he was probably dropped off by a car. There's no buildings for 10 kilometers on the descent. And I, I know this because I've been back so many times in, um, in nice weather. So he was walking down the road cursing <laughs> about being, I don't know what he was saying, but he was swearing like a sailor carrying his two wheels, you know, probably walking back to Borneo for all he knew. And I just popped right around him and I heard him shout in surprise that, you know, I was probably the first living soul he'd seen for half an hour. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so that must be it. Must be true. Yes. Um, I think let's go back now to the to the start of your career. You you grew up in North Dakota. What's a North Dakotan childhood like? Boring. <laughs> um, you can ride a bike. You would just to get out. Um, but yeah. you know, winter was 
from sometime in October till about May. Um, if you didn't ride your bike in the snow, you didn't ride your bike much. Um, you know, it was it was it was very 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 cold. It actually doesn't snow a whole lot there, so and it's dead flat. Um, but through the gift of boredom, I was very excited to ride my bike wherever I could. And there wasn't much cycling there, but I think you, you, before you told me about the, there was a few, you, you described them as hippies who had European 10-speed bikes. and they Yeah, there was, there was a little bike shop, I'll call them hippies, they had yeah? long hair and they did weird things like wear wool jerseys and wool shorts and pointy little black shoes with cleats on the bottom. Um, that wasn't very, very known in North Dakota. And they were super nice and they were very welcoming. You know, there were like cyclists everywhere else in the world. When they see some kids and they think they can bring someone else along, they they did. And they brought my brother and I and another friend, you know, anyone who was around. It was really just three of, well, I guess, four of us at about my age, um, young kids. We, we'd ride every evening about 15 miles. And on weekends, we'd do a longer ride and in better weather, we'd you know, we'd go longer when the light was out in the evenings. And they they were super nice teaching us how to draft so we didn't get lost out in the middle of nowhere. And it, it was, you know, it was a wonderful school of cycling. We, I do, I think I did about three races a year when I first started. You know, it was more of just riding my bike, working on bikes, um, bike touring. But then when I was... 15 my family went to cambridge england for the summer as we'd done when i was 10 and five years old and after a month or so there i managed to get enough money from my parents to get a frame and all the parts necessary to put together a, a nice little bike um and be able to do the the weekly time trials with um cambridge town and county Cycling Town and County, yes, that's it. And they took us to um, Robbie Parker. Took yeah. us, um, I think I did three races that year. Also, little circuit races, Ipswich. So yeah. Sid Barris and Phil Baton fight it out after. All right. After my little schoolboy adventure, it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sid and Phil are both well. Phil's going to come on this, and Sid's been on the cycling uh, podcast. Sid, I know very well. Coming from you, I've office. seen him. Tell him that he won't. <laughs> I will you be won't remember you. me. I'll be seeing him shortly. Yeah, you, you, they, they will remember you. They will remember. You. I cheered for him. So it'll be, um, he'll, he'll love it that uh, that you remember that. They both will. Um, but when you got back in, uh, back to the US, you sort of got involved in racing, and you said it was a, you liked the lifestyle. You were, in, you were traveling. It was like an adventure, and you know, you got to sleep on other people's sofas, and that was, that was a new thing for you, and built confidence, I think. Yeah, it was great. It was, you know, I was a shy kid, and yeah. it, um, don't want to bang on my USA drum too much, but North Dakota is about as remote as you can be <laughs> on the continent yes. um, for it's just culturally um, for a lot of things. So it was really fun for me, both through touring and racing to be able to go and meet other people and, you know, other fam, other kids were friendly, even though we were racing against each other, other families would, often the races would be in the city, 
city centers or the center of a small town around a park, a lot of criteriums, mm -hmm. and it'd be an all day event, not dissimilar to the races I saw in England at that time, the criteriums, um, but that, you know, a mother would be cutting hair for the kids and, you know, you could always get a sandwich from someone and people were very open and happy and, you know, they'd share rides, getting to races. Um, so socially it would, it was, it was very fun. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to ride my bike. Racing a bike was, I don't know if it was what I wanted to do more than anything. I just wanted to ride, work on bikes, race, anything to do with bikes. I was into it. So, so when did you find out you were this super climber and, and, and uh, the sort of competitive drive was, was lit in you? When, when was that? Um, well, as, as a junior, I never, I can't remember racing on a, never raced on a mountain. No. I mean, there'd be hills. If there was a hilly, it was almost all circuit races and criteriums. I would attack on the hill or after the hill when things broke up. Um, you know, but the, the hills wouldn't be that big. But as a junior, I also started spending time training at the national training facility that was in Colorado Springs, which is next to the mountains. And I, I on training rides, I would go in, in the winter when it didn't really matter. Um, the, the best older, the best senior riders, amateur riders were also there. So we do training rides in the mountains and I would humiliate some of the better, <laughs> almost all of the better amateur riders, which didn't mean anything because it was February. But it sure meant a lot to me and the other riders because they get teased by the coaches that a kid from a flat, the flat barren wastelands of North Dakota just dropped them on a little training ride. Um, but I loved it. It was <clears throat> the, the, the type of riding, the, the mental challenges of relaxing going very hard you know it, it probably helped that i didn't race in it but i could ride with very good amateurs watch them and also add i mean people were so friendly even the top amateurs i would ask them you know how do you time trial how do you sprint how do you climb and they would just say well i, I don't know but you know relax you know relax your upper body everything's working hard but instead of bending over and fighting like we normally do on a bike, just sit up, you know, accept that it's extraordinarily difficult, but relax your back, relax your upper chest so you can breathe deeper into your belly. Um, you know, I, I can't remember anyone teaching me to climb, but I remember other amateurs saying, wow, you know, you humiliated me but you did it really well. You know, watch Bob Cook was the, our top amateur climber at the time. Yeah. You know, when you're really hurting, watch him. He'll relax more the harder the climb gets. So it was it was a good atmosphere to to learn to climb in. Uh, and that's something, did you take that? I, I remember speaking to Lucien Van Imp. I mean, a great climber. Um, he said the same thing in, in a on a climb, he would get the gearing right and get it matched with his with his breathing. And once his breathing was settled, once he was relaxed, um, then you could think about attacking. Then you could think about going up a gear. Is that is that a a common thing with great climbers? Then just relaxed. Sorry, I'm still in awe that you spoke to Lucien Van Am <laughs> in the age of the internet. Um, 
Hats well, off. I spoke to Lucy about him in the in the age of of uh, going to his house and um, and, uh, and and interviewing him. Ah, he's awesome. I, I got it. Sorry, let's not get too sidetracked. Now, um, now we've got Zoom. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know, and that's. I would watch Lucien Van Imp. I was so impressed. He won the tour, and then when I raced with him, he he raced quite a while. You know, he was by far the oldest of the yeah. great riders to continue. He wasn't a one day specialist that could just get smart and win win in a sprint. He would position himself. He would. He was so good to follow mm-hmm. uh, in races that I, you know, I I tried to learn just by watching him and talking to him. Um, but yeah, I, I to me, it's you know most of bike racing is handling stress, and certainly climbing is learning how to relax physically as you're pushing yourself as as hard as you can psychologically you know, either to get rid of people or knowing the game as a climber, oh, they've just done the third surge. I bet it slows down after this one. If I can just hang on, yeah. if I'm not up to the pace, you know, they'll get demoralized and they'll slow down. Yeah. Um, but he was he was a master to learn from. Yeah, there's a lot of psychology in it. And, and I mean, 1985, when you were professional, you won straight away in the, in the Giro d'Italia, you won a stage. And is it right that you, you it was Bernardino that recruited you to the La, La Vie Claire team? Eno and Lamond. Yeah. I mean, I um, loved them both as teammates, but Lamond was so excited in that race because it was the first, well, the first Grand Tour with an American team, um, yeah. the 7-Eleven team. And he just wanted more Americans to, to talk to in the Peloton. So he was overjoyed. But he he said... You know, hey, Andy, you've got to do something. You know, you can't. I, I didn't have a contract with 7-Eleven. I just had a one-month mini contract. I was I was a temp worker for 7-Eleven. Um, he said, you you know, we, we've, we both knew that the game, I had to get onto a European team or a European-based team to do well because I was, I was a stage race yeah. climber at that point. Um, so he told his team, hey, watch that kid. It's his first pro race and he's really good. And then he'd tell me, hey, you have to do something because I just told the team that you're really good. Um, and I, <laughs> I started riding well, really in the second half of that Giro. I, I had a horrible day in the first day in the mountains, a long, cold day in the Dolomites. Um, lost a lot of time. But, you know, we just as we looped south and came back into the the mountains in the north, I was doing well. I was making good splits. And I won a, I did win the, the 19th stage was a very short stage, but on a pretty good sized climb that I was able to get a, get away and win solo. Um, so that that helped a lot. And, and then you uh, were the first American to win a big European stage race, I think with the Tour of Switzerland. How did, how did that, uh, when you were with La Vie Claire, well, that's when, um, because of Lamond and, and Hino being excited um, for how well I was riding, I did join Lobby Claire in 86. And I, I, I did fairly well in the spring. It was, it was very, very cold weather. I can't remember any big results, but the team was happy the way I was riding, yeah. sort of overcoming the odds. And, you know, I was able to help Hino 
at a, at a race in Spain. You know, I was I was an eager rookie on the team, but the the tour team, which was ten riders that year, it wasn't selected till you know a week or two, as tradition is, a week or two before. So going into the tour of Switzerland, and now we must be in mid June. Yeah. You know, I wasn't. It wasn't a sure thing. So I, I was I wasn't very confident at all that I would I would make the team. And again, the dreadful it was dreadful weather that year. So when I would try to go train, I was living in Switzerland and I would want to go training in the bigger mountains in the Alps and have to, you know, I'd drive there and start a ride and have to turn around when it started snowing at 800 meters or, you know, nowhere near the tops of the peaks. So I, I was very nervous going into the the tour of Switzerland. And I remember showing up the night before at the little, nice little guest house hotel we were in. And my two teammates, who I was really good friends with, Nikki Reutemann and Guido Winterberg, were two Swiss riders, just yeah. super domestiques, just really smart. Um, and I raced against them as amateurs. You know, we're sort of the younger riders, but they, they'd been on the team longer. And they were at the bar having a beer when I walk in. Like, guys, the tour's around the corner. You know, are you, are you shoe-ins for the tour? I'm not. You know, how could you be having a beer? And they say, oh, Andy, relax. It, first, it's a shandy, you know, and it's small. Yeah. It's just, you got to, you we're pros. You got to relax. There's so much pressure. And I, I just... Like, all right, I'm, I'll have what they're having. And just relaxed. And we, we had a prologue that, I don't know, it was, I think it was eight kilometers, eight or 10 kilometers. I'm not sure you could look it up, but it was, it was yeah. a hilly loop. It wasn't a hill climb. It was a complete circuit, but, you know, maybe a third of it was uphill. Then I, I liked it. And I, I went early that day. And my teammate, Charlie Berard, was, was leading you know, he, he was one of the first ones and he's a very good time trialist. So he was leading. So the car, Paul Coakley, the, the director sportive was following everyone. Switzerland, everything's terribly organized. Yes. Um, so he tells me at the, you know, he's shouting out splits. I don't like a lot of information, you know, and he has to shout out the window, but there's no spectators on the climb. It's, it's easy to do. Mm -hmm. so he tells me I'm doing really well in the, in the first split and then the top of the hill he says oh you've got 18 seconds up on charlie berard <laughs> uh, don't know if that's right but wow that's pretty good and i'm you know the, the descent's technical enough that i'm scolding myself for breaking more than i think i should and you know i come around and i'm leading yeah, i beat charlie berard this is great but there are 100 more riders to go I'm a rookie, but I'm not stupid. There's no way I'm going to hang around because, you know, I'll end up being 50th place. So I ride back to the hotel, which isn't that far away, take a shower, put on my sweats, you know, but the, the, the race is on TV. So I'm, I'm watching and I'm still leading. Oh, that's all right. But, you know, now, you know, the really good riders are starting to go, but, you know, I'd better get back to the race. So in my team sweats, I ride back to the race just as LeMond is finishing. Yeah. So he's the penultimate rider in our team because he knows we'll go last. And he didn't beat me. Wow. So I'm trying to be cool about this whole thing. <laughs> of course, 
um, you know, uh, you know exactly what's going through my head. You know, yeah. I might win, which of course you know exactly what's going through my head next. There's no way you're gonna win. You know, it's a time trial. You gotta, you gotta be cool about this. <laughs> Good thing I'm not still at the hotel. <laughs> sure enough, he knows the last one off, comes around, doesn't beat me. Right. And, you know, the team's kind of rejoicing because we're first, second, and third on the podium. And I'm the last one to get up on the podium. And I sort of shake my teammates' hands, but I'm really saying, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he knows just delighted. Yeah. He's, just, he's so happy to work for a teammate. Um Greg was, you know, happy we were doing well, but um, I don't know if he, he was personally, I don't know how satisfied he was having a teammate lead him. So, so what's Bernardino like? I mean, you get this, the, 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 this badger um, thing and, and, and that he, you know, he could growl and he could, he could bite and that, but uh, what's he like as a person? What, what, well, he would growl and he would bite, but I'll say he's, he's my I've had a lot of great teammates. I don't want to say he's my favorite teammate. He's my just one of the best teammates I've ever had. Because the next day in the Tour of Switzerland, pouring rain, four hard circuits, but it'll be a field sprint at the end, and it's a bit windy. He comes and finds me on the last lap. Right. How are you doing, Andy? Well, not very well, because I'm too proud to put a rain jacket over my leader's jersey, and I'm kind of shivering and starting to lose energy, and I might get dropped. See, so, yeah, I thought you might. So he just when we're when we're strung out, he takes me to the front by going in the other lane, sitting up on the tops of his bars, <laughs> slides back with me on the hills, and Panasonic's doing their train for the sprint. He brings me right up to 10th position, just armchair ride to the finish for a teammate. Because that's what he taught me in Spain in the spring, is he won. Uh, the, the prologue in Valencia or somewhere, and he doesn't even like, you know, he just wants to talk farming with Nicky Reutemann. He got <laughs> that into racing in February, but he's leading. So I, I find him at the back of the peloton when we're all strung out, and I start bringing him up, but I bring him up next to the other riders that are strung out in the gutter, and he puts his hand on my hip and pushes me into the opposite lane, yeah, showing me just keep me out here and I can't get him to the front. So I'm all disappointed. And I find him after the race, uh, trying you know, to apologize to him. And he said, Andy, if I'm picking my nose at the back of the group and, and, the, you know, and it starts getting strung out, it's because I don't want to be fighting for wheels at the front. Yeah. Just good, even if you only take me for 10 meters, I appreciate it, but right. I don't want to monkey around with these other idiots. We're all <laughs> idiots at the back. <laughs> and you know and then the next day he got a flat on an uphill and I, I he got the wheel changed quickly from our car it was there was only 20 or so left in the group but I I waited for him and on the descent I I waved him ahead of me because on the bumpy little Spanish road I couldn't catch the leaders you know and it was 20 k's to go and pretty important and he didn't pass me and then it flattened out and I could help him catch the the leaders so again i apologize to him my french isn't that good but he's super kind and mindful about communicating to me in french so i can understand 
And he said, Andy, if you don't want to die on the descent on a tiny little Spanish road in February, I don't want to die. On that <laughs> but let's, you know, we don't have time to talk about this, but what you did was great. You know, thanks for sticking with me. He would always show me. Yeah. He's my favorite teammate. Instead of, he never got upset. He would show me how he wanted to be helped. And then he would help teammates doing exactly the help he wanted. And a lot of my French teammates, we were on the best team, as far as I'm concerned, in history of cycling. Yeah. yeah. But there was very little, like I understood French fairly well, but I didn't speak it fluently at the table, mm -hmm. trying to, you know, I couldn't keep up with other people, but one-on-one -on -one I could follow everything. The other young guys weren't asking questions. They just thought, oh, I'm on Lobby Claire, this is great. <laughs> but they, they weren't seeking him out to learn how to race. And he really appreciated that I and, and Roy Nickman on the team, we'd just go up to him, anytime you can help us ever, please, we're, we're just tell me when I'm doing something wrong. So it was great. I mean, it was horrible in the tour because he was racing against Lamond and not telling us what was going on. And, and that was awful to be on the team, but... That, that yeah, was my now I completely question. understand why he would do it. Yeah, that was my next question. Was he was he riding for Le Mans in, in 1986? No, he, he, he was riding to decimate the opposition. Yeah, that's what I think. If, if Le Mans, you know, he did it once, he did it twice, two days in a row. He didn't need to do the second day if he wanted to win for himself. Right. So, no, it wasn't specifically for Le Mans. Which is what I was led to believe, and Greg, and you know, the whole team thought, "Oh, we're gonna, we're gonna give the race to Greg." But his point of on Lobby Claire, we only ride offensively, and you know, Greg doesn't like doing that. He only likes attacking when he sees other people faltering. Right. Um, you know, I'm the only one riding aggressively. Greg won't do it. It's not my fault if, you know, day one, he got five minutes. It wasn't his fault. Yeah. yeah. Um, day two, he annihilated, you know, our day one, you know, the backstory from where I was in the Peloton is all the domestiques had to chase him down and it didn't work. Mm -hmm. Day two, the domestiques were tired. So the, the other leaders had to chase him down. So they were tired. So Greg could win. Yeah. Um, I think it was Lou's already done by five minutes. Yeah. You know, and now it was a two horse race that Greg ended up winning because he was the strongest. Yeah. But Greg's complaint is he had to race against his teammate. The, he knows point was, yeah, but he only has to race against his teammate because I decimated everyone else. Yeah. That's that's all I mean, and that that's the saying that he has I live to attack, it's true. He did he did live to attack, you know. That was his his thing. He was a very attacking rider. Yeah, yeah. I mean he it, it was hard at the moment because he wouldn't say I'm going to attack. Yeah. It was more of a rage. He wanted to win. Mm -hmm. Um <laughs> of course he wanted to win. Good, good. <laughs> but I I'm glad about that, to be honest. Um Going on in your career, you 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 won a Grand Tour 
Um, and it was something I, I picked up that Paul Sherwin had written in Cycle Sport, in a, an old Cycle Sport in 1994, that maybe you lost a bit of your climbing because you were working on time trialing and trying to win Grand Tours overall. I mean, you've already won one and you had a very good chance of winning others. Is that true? Do you think you think you lost a little bit of your climbing? Because you went back to it, didn't you? We're going to get onto that. You went back to the, that. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I mean, certainly... Paul had a great point and, you know, he saw it from the inside at Motorola. <clears throat> I was trying to become more of an all round rider mm -hmm. and always wanting to win the tour. That's always been my objective. Mm -hmm. Fell in love with the tour. You know, I'd win the Giro. Oh, that's great. But, you know, next month I want to win the tour. Um, how silly. Youth is wasted on the young and all that. <laughs> um you know, and my bad luck perhaps was, you know, then we get into the early 90s as the tour is doing longer time trials in less mountains. Yeah. Um, and Indoran is, yeah. is in the mix. You know, I'm not saying I would have won a tour if, if this or if that. Um, but I, I don't know if I slowed down in my climbing. Certainly as I age, I got stronger. But I don't think I could climb as fast. I wasn't as as sharp. You know, maybe you see it with sprinters when they're younger. They just, yeah, you know, yeah. they're 20 places back and somehow they win. And then they're on a big team and they're getting all the lead outs and everything should be going great. And they're being beaten by other people because I, I think my speed as a climber diminished as I got older, as I was also doing bigger workloads, yeah. including a lot of power workouts to try to be a better time trialist, mm -hmm. which never really happened. I mean, I could defend, you know, I can <laughs> point out that I defended in some time trials pretty well, but usually got absolutely clobbered in the tour. Um, you know, so then my whole year was a failure because I'd lose five or eight minutes in a time trial that Stupidly, I should have <laughs> just tried to go hunting and won some other races along the way. And then when you did go hunting for stages, I mean, there was that great day on Outdoors um, that, you, that you won on Outdoors. Is that, is that really an ambition of every climber to win on Outdoors? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, the, there's not always Outdoors. It's not that no. certainly not the hardest climb. No. Certainly not the most beautiful, but it's just prestige-wise amongst the riders. It's the stage finish that's repeated the most. It lends itself to being a natural amphitheater for a lot of spectators. And, well, there's a tradition of a lot of spectators to come and make a ruckus. Mm -hmm. Every time it's there, it, it's a big one. You know, I would have loved to win. You know, it's not my favorite mountain to climb, but it was certainly my favorite stage to try to win. Yeah. And in those days, you you were um, with the technology. It was interesting because I actually saw a picture of your your one of the bikes you used to use with um, Eddie Merck's bike with the one STI lever and one down tube lever, and you mm. used to you used to have special wheels made, didn't you, with with titanium hubs uh, or titanium skewers? You know, titanium skewers from Tino Moroni. Oh, you have a sharp yeah. eye. Yeah, um, it was a constant battle with my very intelligent mechanics that would tell me not to put stupid light things on my bike <laughs> they would you know they, they would have very light wheels for me the frame was a 
753 tubing yeah. um, that Eddie Marks would make for us, and then he would crush them. It was really? heartbreaking. He would, because he knew someone would end up, he knew they would break in 10 or 20 years when some. Oh, if they were sold on. Heavier person yeah. went for a Sunday ride on the cobbles on them. Um, and then the STI levers, I really liked the STI for the safety and the convenience, but they were heavy. So I, I used the right one and not the left one. Um, and, you know, that, that was. The, the, the Elp de Wes was the day when it all came together. You know, I really wanted to win it. There were only three mountain days that day. The previous day was a huge marathon that I was fifth in, but I was fourth out of a group of four. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I was hunting. I was, I was doing well. I was in the top 10 on GC, but it was the last mountain day. It was my last chance but I really wanted to win a stage. So I had it all calculated when I would attack and I, you know, wait until everyone was feeling bad, but a break went a mountain, you know, two hours before I wanted to, to go. And I was thinking about it. Oh, that looks pretty good, but I don't know. I don't know. And then my legs just took off when someone else quivered to join up with those two people. And we had a nice group of five good climbers, you know, it went, at a hard early in the mountain, but at a hard pace. So everyone was having a good day. We worked well together. Um, we had oh, a good two or three minutes going into Elk to Wes. And I, I was highest on GC. So, you know, people were watching me to see whether I would work for GC or if I sit back and try to win the stage. And I knew that and they knew I knew that and all those little games. So I just thought I want to move up on general classification. I'm going to, I'll, I'll do the pace setting the first third of the race and I'll attack in the last third of the race. So the last four or five kilometers. But as I was doing that pace setting, Eric Boyer wanted to, he wanted to lead. And I think it was Bastille Day. And he was the only French rider there. There was some complication. Yeah. So I was half wheeling him on it, um, which wasn't very smart. But I was feeling good and I was eating and drinking and the, my team car was right there and Henny Kuiper was our yeah. race director and he's clever and he's won it twice. I mean, he really wants me to win it, um, you know, for every possible reason under the sun. And he comes up to me and he always has a, he always wants me to, you know, do the Dutch tactics, which is what, how do they say? Um, never eat off of your own plate until you've, finished eating off of everyone else's yeah. plate, you know, just, oh, I'm not feeling, I can't pull all of this, but I want to move up on GC. So I've already shown that I'm willing to keep the pace high. And he's, <laughs> he actually agreed with my tactic and, you know, said, go ahead, just, you know, attack towards the end if you can and, you know, hang on if someone's stronger than you. And it's not a smart tactic, but it, I think it worked well for me because mm -hmm. I, I, I think at about five kilometers from the finish, four or five kilometers, I, it was down to three of us. And Franco Vona, who was first in the group that I was in the day before, who was riding very strongly, um, he was on my wheel and I, I think Boyer was there. I thought, well, I've been sitting at the front. They know it's not like they're drafting a lot, but... You know, I've shown all my cards, but the other 
side of that hand is if I don't get, if I don't show signs of weaknesses, even though they might've been smirking, thinking, oh, Andy's doing this extra work, we'll just sit on an attack when he falters. If I never slow down, you know, it, it can have a reverse, it can have a nice psychological effect if, if they don't see any signs of weaknesses. So my attack was in a, in a curve that I knew would get steeper. I just kept the same pace, same gear, same RPM, didn't stand up. I, I was quite good at sitting down um, and then in switchbacks, I, I liked following the easiest gradient, even if it was a longer route, which it yeah. usually would be. And, you know, I, I did my attack. I, I could look without being too obvious. I could look over my shoulder and I saw that Boyer had slid back a few places, a few lengths. And Franco Vona, you know, he wasn't on my wheel. He was a couple bike lengths back. So it, I thought, okay, I'll make him, I'll make them both fight to get back on my wheel by keeping the same pace, um, you know, trying to trick them into thinking, I, I didn't attack, I just, I'm just riding my bike up here. Um, and, it, you know, it worked, they were smart, they they kept their pace, hoping, I'm sure that, that I would blow up and get too excited, which happens because there's hundreds of thousands of people going bonkers in front of me, cheering for everyone, but it's easy on Elf to Wes to get overly excited, listen to the crowd, yeah. <laughs> start sprinting, <laughs> thinking, oh, I'm winning, I'm winning, and, and blow up. Yeah. I, you know, I was an experienced racer at that point. And one of the experiences I called on, because I was thinking, okay, this is great, but you know, something could go wrong. I've been focusing on eating and drinking enough for the whole stage for a, you know, an explosive finish. And, and then I thought, okay, well, with, if someone's with you at three K's attack again, at two K's, you know, do absolutely everything you can to get ahead of people, you know, if anyone's around and they weren't. So I'm thinking, okay, you're going, I don't know, 95%, let's go to 98%. Let's make sure without being negative about it. And then this is, you know, just similar to climbing or time trialing. You know, what what feedback do you listen to? Oh, my legs hurt, my lungs hurt, my back hurts, my everything hurts. Well, that's actually a good sign. You know, it's not that I have tendonitis, it's not that one leg is feeling terrible because I have an injury or I can't get on top of my breath or my heart won't get going or it won't stop. You know, everything was hurting equally which which is a good sign at the at that point so then when in the last couple of kilometers when the barricades started and i could really focus on getting as much time as i could i was looking for motivation and i thought oh a couple of years previously maybe it was 87 i was on 711 and eddie Merckx had just joined us as a co-sponsor uh, it must have been 89 sorry yeah. And he was in our team car. And, oh, Andy, I'm going to watch you win Alpha West today. You know, he can be in any team. He can be in the director's car. Yeah. You know, he gets any ride he wants. So it's an honor to have him in the car. And I have food poisoning. The whole team oh. got food poisoning, almost the whole team. And I finished 80. Mm. I was in the first group. I was with Chiapucci and Bunio and whoever you wanted. And the, the, there was a little breakaway up the road that wasn't going to win. And I finished in 80th place, going as hard as I could, not having eaten a thing all day long. 
just feeling horrible. And of course, Eddie Merckx just says, oh, don't worry, tomorrow's another day. But when I'm, as I'm doing well on Altawes, I thought, okay, I'm going to make sure that my body hurts without anything being wrong with it, that I'm pushing as hard as I did yeah. when I was sick on Altawes, knowing that everything was going well. So I was able to open time, you know, I won the stage, but also opened up on the other GC riders all the way up the mountain. So I was, I was happy with that. You, and you finished fourth overall in that tour. After, finished fourth after, overall. Yeah. After all, ended up third it. after that day. Yeah. Um, what do, do you think? That was the, the 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 best day you you had on a bike, or was it? Uh, was it the Gavia? What's the looking back? What's the best day you ever had on a bike? I mean, it could be training. It could be anything. Yeah. Um, that was a super day because all the pressure of the tour. You know, I hadn't it hadn't won a stage yet in the tour, despite some, you know, good performances, but certainly wasn't anywhere near winning the tour, which was my goal. Um, the, the ride on the Gavia was, it was the one I'm most proud of, because if you put in the psychological factor, how difficult it was psychologically, I'm glad I didn't fall apart on that day. And, and there were huge rewards, you know, thank goodness there were great rewards for it. Um, you know, th there's other victories, usually hilltops or mountain time trials that I've won that I really thought, okay, that was 100%. You know, I, 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 was, I was doing well. I, you know, I, I've been, I didn't get overly nervous. It all came together. But I, I th the, the victory that was the most fun um, and, and of course, as a stage racer, the most fun is winning one day and being done with it. Because yeah. to win a tour of Switzerland or certainly the tour of Italy, it's just a relief, Chris, when it's over. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, once I take a leader's jersey, it's just, you know, I've got a great team. Everyone's doing everything they can for me. But it's just a worry. It's just a constant yeah. stress. Yeah. You know, what if someone 20 minutes down gets in a 21 minute breakaway? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone's out to get me, which is the nature of the sport. So it's fun winning a one day race. But my first pro win in 1985 and that, in that Giro we, we spoke about when I won the, the short uphill day was really a moment where you know, the little demons on my shoulder was saying, well, you can't do this. You know, these are, these are super pros and, you know, you're lucky to even be, you know, all the, all the natural thoughts that I had. Um, you know, I was there on a one, I just looked at it as a one-way ticket. I have one month to race as a pro, mm -hmm. you know, I need to find a team. The 7-Eleven wasn't sure if they would have, uh, if they would race in Europe because, 7-Eleven doesn't have stores. In no, no, no. <laughs> you know, it's a big, I, I was looking for a team during that race and Lobby Claire was interested, Carrera was interested. You know, it, it was a huge opportunity for me. And that's to win as a rookie in my first professional race was, was the hugest thrill to get that monkey off my back yeah. um, and end up with a, with a great victory. Was, it, that was the most fun, sort of the one of it not the one I was most, you asked what race I was most proud of. Um, you know, so I, I might say helping Greg win the Tour de France. Yeah. 
1986, you know, I loved helping teams win. I loved it when Davis Finney won the Coors Classic race, mm -hmm. his hometown, my hometown race, mountainous race, perfectly suited to me. He's a sprinter. Um, but I and the team agreed we wanted him to win the race and I was able to race in a way to, to help him win it. You know, that was something I was really proud of. Looking back after 30 some years of retirement, some of my fondest memories were races at just stupid little races where, you know, we'd lost the lead. A break was 10 minutes up the road. You know, we're, we're not going to win, but we chased so hard for so long that I, I can't even remember if we brought the break back or not, but the, the Bianchi team that laughed at us for missing the breakaway, we made them suffer for so long in the gutter. <laughs> that was so much fun. That was like, that's what I miss about racing. Yeah. I, I miss I, the game. And it is, I mean, it, it is like, I mean, it seems like a brotherhood, isn't it? And, um, you know, you, 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 you have that fellow feeling that you, you, you against the rest. It is. And then that's, that's why he know was such an important teammate. Yeah. He, he loved just, even when he didn't want to race, he early season cold, but he doesn't like racing in Spain. We just go there because it was good weather. God, he loved racing when they they'd gang up on him or tease him or something stupid. And he would he would just we'd start attacking. I can't remember which stages we won. It was Kim Anderson. It was an early team meeting. Again, my French wasn't so great, but I could always ask. The English speakers, you know, the details about the meeting. But I remember it was Criterium International quite early in the year, hard circuit, three or four times up a pretty hard climb. And I liked that climb. And Paul Coakley said, and it was like two or three laps, not the last lap, but pretty f halfway through the race, we're going to foot la mer. <laughs> yeah. And I go, wow. I think I know what those words are. I've never heard that expression, but it sounds like the shit's going to hit the fan. Yeah. And Kim Anderson, big guy, just gets up and he's just so excited about that day's race and everyone else is cringing. So I went to Le Monde or one of the, the Kim Erickson was a, was a Danish writer that spoke English and French very well. I said, what? What's going on? It's all, you heard it right. You know, three, let's call it three laps from the end. On the hard climb, we're going to start attacking. And it, and Coakley was I don't care if we win. I don't care if it works. I just want to see one attack after another all the way to the end. You know, let's, let's just have fun. We're back to having fun. You know, we, we've done a couple weeks of warm-up races. It's time to start racing just like we did last year. Yeah. And it was it was terrifying. And then I saw my teammates, all of them scared, go to the front. Kim Anderson looked around and he thought, I'm not waiting for them to attack. I'm going first. <laughs> and we just started attacking and we'd get dropped. And, you know, but it was fun because we were the ones putting the hurt on everyone else. So so we'd get excited. And, yeah. You know, I could tell you a thousand more stories about when it was terrible having Steve Bauer and Greg LeMond and all these superstars attacking when I couldn't keep up with the Peloton. 
you know, there's a downside to it, but it was it was a good way to race. Brilliant. Well, Andy, thank you so much for sharing those uh, the, the, your experiences with us. Uh, I'm sure our, our listeners will, will enjoy it. I've enjoyed listening to you. Uh, and thank you so much for the time that you've you've given me today. Very welcome, Chris. Love to have a link. I'll put it on my sites. And I, I, I will do that. Yes. Thank you very much. Just Excellent. You have a great day.